spring, the month of uh, July, I've been in this uh, sermon series called Ghosted. You know what that means. It means that you put your feelers out there and the person that you reached out to didn't respond and maybe is done with you. Uh, and, and the other part of that ser- sermon series title is what to do when you feel that God is silent. Um, because that is one of the most challenging uh, journey, part of our journey of faith, is this idea that sometimes it feels as if God is not just silent, but sometimes it feels as, God, as if God is absent. Uh, and in various times of history, that has been the case. I, I have every expectation that many of the people who were uh, put into concentration camps during World War II felt that God was absent in that time. Uh, and we have had our own times, uh, most recently, COVID. Well, if you have ever experienced this cosmic silence or absence, you need to know you were in good company. Time Magazine reported in an article entitled Mother Teresa, Mother Teresa's Crisis of Faith that on December 11th, 1979, Mother Teresa, the saint of the gutters, went to Oslo, dressed in her signature blue bordered sari and shod in sandals despite the below zero temperatures. The former Agnes Bohashu received that ultimately worldly prize, the Nobel Peace Prize. In her acceptance lecture, Teresa, whose missionaries of charity had grown from a one-woman folly in Calcutta in 1948 to a global beacon of self-rejecting care, delivered the kind of message the world had come to expect from her. She said, it is not enough for us to say, I love God, but I do not love my neighbor. Since in dying on the cross, God became the hungry one, the naked one, the homeless one. Jesus' hunger is what you and I must find and alleviate. Finally, she suggested that the upcoming Christmas holiday should remind the world that radiating joy is real because Christ is everywhere. Christ is in our hearts. Christ is in the poor we meet. Christ is in the smile we give and in the smile we receive. Yet less than three months earlier, in a letter to a spiritual confidant, the Reverend Michael Van Der Peet, she wrote the, with weary familiarity of a different kind of Christ, an absent one. She wrote this. Jesus has a very special love for you, she assured Van Der Peet. But as for me, the silence and the emptiness is so great that I look and do not see I listen and do not hear. The tongue moves in prayer but does not speak. I want you to pray for me that I will let Christ have a free hand. 
You probably know that her letters were saved by the church, though she didn't want them saved, and were published posthumously and revealed that for nearly a half century, almost 50 years of her life, she felt no presence of God whatsoever, neither in her heart or in the Eucharist. The church has actually taught for years that there is an expectation that among faithful people there will be fallow periods, that we don't stay on the mountain top high. Jesus didn't either. Didn't, Moses didn't either. We don't stay perpetually in a mountain top high, but that there are fallow periods of our, of our faith life. The Spanish mystic St. John of the Cross in the 16th century coined the term the dark night of the soul to describe a characteristic stage in the growth of some spiritual teachers. And I, I, would, I dare say that I don't think it's just spiritual teachers. I think all of us have periods where we feel distant from God, estranged from God, that we can't hear or feel or understand what God is calling us to or wanting us to do or be, um, or we simply drift away. And, uh, you know, uh, so for St. Mother Teresa, uh, she found ways starting in the early 1960s to live with her emptiness and abandoned neither her belief in God nor her work among the poor. Hers was a faith-filled life of perseverance that might have been her most spiritually heroic act. Of course, most of us, fortunately, will not experience that level of God's absence or silence. Ours may come in shorter, hopefully, shorter time periods than 50 years. Um, but still, we experience that. And uh, the question is, how, how do we respond then in these times of God's absence or the experience or we feel as if we are experiencing God's absence or silence? Now, the church has historically taught that God, Jesus Christ, the Holy Spirit, is not absent. Uh, we are having, we have difficulty discerning that presence and experiencing that presence and hearing that presence and that voice. We have trouble with that uh, discernment. So I come from a family of talkers. <laughs> surprise, surprise. We are a talking family. And we took, took our lead from my dad, Papa Hud. You know, he could get on an elevator on the first floor with a group of people he'd never met. And by the time he got to about the fifth floor, he found that he was related to all of them. <laughs> just simply by talking. He was a, a talker. And so my family, I lived in Bryan College Station, and my parents were there too. So we tried to make it a a thing where we'd have lunch on a regular basis together just so we wouldn't miss each other because we were living busy lives. So 
we're at lunch one day, and it's me and a friend and my mom and dad, and we're sitting down there, and we're all talking. And we notice my dad going, and then we're and then we're all talking, and then a little while later he go, and finally I looked at him and said, Papa, what are you doing? He said, Well. I read this article this week that said if you want to be a good listener, you should wait until someone finishes speaking and then take a breath before you start to talk. And so I've been doing that. I've, well, the unfortunate thing for my dad is we didn't ever shut up. So there wasn't any chance for him to take a breath and then say something because by the time he took his breath, one of us was already talking. We would talk all over each other and did often and very loudly. You know, uh, that little exercise didn't work for him so well, and he jumped right in and joined the conversation as usual. But being a good listener is not about a forced artificial waiting. After all, Papa Hutt, if we had asked him, would have told you that he was still focusing on himself and what he was getting ready to say, right? In relationship with God, listening is about awakening. And then perhaps responding. So instead of, and oftentimes now what we found by the great mystics, the mothers and uh, desert mothers and fathers, and now are the people among us who are spiritual directors and teachers of of the contemplative life, that breathing is part of that journey with God, that that remembering that our breath, our breath that comes into us is filled with God's presence and uh, is a gift Mm -hmm. that we return and then we are filled again. And and so that practice of breathing is is pretty reliable. Most, uh, Most people who practice contemplative life will tell you. Well, we didn't have our first lesson today because I, after we printed the worship guides, I realized that I wanted to quote it in full in my sermon. And, and we could have had both. I mean, we could have, you know, heard it two Thank times you. and maybe one time read in one translation and one time in another. But I didn't think of that. So I'm going I'm to try to get us to understand our first lesson from the book of Isaiah Isaiah 55, uh, and the selections from, from the lesson that is assigned for today. It's a pretty remarkable piece, and it comes out of what, what we call, what biblical scholars call, uh, Isaiah 3, which means uh, Isaiah is a very long text. And Isaiah 1 is pre-exilic, pre-exile, Isaiah 2 is exile, and Isaiah 3 is post-exile. So what we get in Isaiah 3 is this amazing voice of Isaiah praising God and speaking of God's holiness. So, uh, so I want you to hear um, what's really important here. The very first word of the lesson today is listen with an exclamation point. In the old reading of it, it was, ho! 
that was what would happen. Uh, but in the newer translations, it's listen. This is what God, the prophet is speaking in God's voice to the people and says, listen. And, and what we need to remember is that for Isaiah, the key, the central attribute of God is God's holiness. That God is completely and utterly holy. And Isaiah gets this from a, um, a spiritual experience he had in the temple. You probably remember it starts with in the year King Uzziah died. And then he is in this temple and he has this vision of God on a throne. And the cherubims are flitting around. And uh, he hears the voices say, holy, holy, holy are you God. In fact, if you read that whole passage, you will discover that it is a model for our worship. We start with praise. We go to confession. We hear the word of God. Oh, oh, we are absolved of confessions. We hear the word of God. And then we sing praise again. It's a whole model for, for, for years of how we have worshiped. Well, God is holy in Isaiah's vision because God does what is right. And that righteousness results in justice. But along with the holiness, righteousness, and justice of God, we hear equally strongly emphasis on the love, mercy, and goodness of God. And that's what we hear in Isaiah 3. After all the trials, the fears of oncoming, being armies coming to take over, uh, which Israel, was con Israel and Judah were constantly under fire from the Assyrians and other uh, armies, and ultimately Babylon, where they were taken away into exile. But we hear this, this idea of the love, mercy, and goodness of God very strongly in Isaiah 3. The instructions in our reading today, or perhaps God's appeal instead of instructions, uh, that follow that open, opening exclamation of listen could not be clearer. So hear the word of God. Come, buy wine and milk without money and without price. Why do you spend your money on that which is not bread and your earnings for that which does not satisfy? He could be writing to us today. You know, come and experience my presence without money, without price. Come. Why are you spending your life on things that do not satisfy? Listen carefully to me, God says. Eat what is good and delight yourselves in rich food with God being that rich food. Incline your ear and come to me, listen, so that you may live. I will make with you an everlasting covenant. Seek me while I may be found. Call upon me while I am near. Do you hear the appeal in that? God is appealing to us. God wants us to enter into relationship. In fact, is begging us to consider what, who God is and what is available to us. In the second half of that, that reading, 
We hear the result of our faithful, faith-filled listening, our awakening to God. God says, you're going to love this. For as the rain and the snow come down from heaven and do not return there until they have watered the earth, making it bring forth and sprout, giving seed to the farmer and bread to the eater, so shall my word be that which goes out from my mouth. It shall not return to empty to me, but it shall accomplish that which I purpose and succeed in the thing for which I sent it. For you shall go out in joy and be led back in peace. The mountains that God seeks to make with us, God's promise from the prophet Isaiah, has the echoes of our gospel reading today. I don't know if you hear it. Um, Come and feast on me, the prophet Isaiah says, which we will hear Jesus say at that last supper. Be with me, engage me, listen to me, follow me, are the appeals of Jesus. And, and one of the things about the Hebrew lessons is that the, the opening words of Genesis, the, the prophets, the Psalms, the wisdom books, all talk about God being revealed in nature. That God can be seen and heard in the natural world. And, and so we shouldn't try to separate ourselves from that, uh, that revelation. Certainly we have the revelation of Jesus. We have the Holy Spirit who comes and dwells in us and around us and between us and beyond us. We have all of that. But in nature, we can also see the revelation of God. And so we hear things like, you know, you shall go out in joy and be led by the mountains and the hills before you shall burst into song, and all the trees of the field shall clap their hands. This is the presence of God with us. Well, as I said, there's these references that, you know, um, you hear that, that, you know, the verse that says, uh, making... Uh, the water makes uh, the earth bring forth and sprout, giving seed to the farmer and bread to the eater. So we get intimations of the gospel reading for today, which is a reading about a farmer who goes out to plant seed. And the seed that is made into bread is what we consume in order to draw close to God. In the Southern Baptist Church, as well as many other denominations, I might add, and even non-denominational churches, uh, oftentimes the scripture about the farmer who goes out to plant seed uh, is taught as an allegory. That God's the farmer, and that the seed is God's word or scripture. That we are the soil, and that whether the planted seed flourished and produce fruit was somehow up to us. An indication of our spiritual health. Okay? And so, you know, unlucky you, if your seed fell on the road and the birds ate it. 
Unlucky you if you fell into shallow soil, because you'd be gone under, uh, in the sunshine. Unlucky you. And all, but the seed that falls in the rich soil. Okay, well, this creates all kind of problems. It creates all kind of problems. Uh, you know, uh, isn't the farmer, if, if the farmer is God, the one responsible for the planting, why did God just throw it indiscriminately around? I don't know any gardeners or farmers that do that. They plow the fields. They carefully plant. So, so the questions are, are we the ground? If we're the ground, uh, who is the seed and who is the farmer? And if, I mean, if not, who's doing the planting? You know? I mean, it raises all kinds of questions. But listen. Listen again to the end of the gospel reading for today from Eugene Peterson's paraphrase where the disciples asked Jesus why he chooses to teach in parables. Hey, Rabbi, why not just give them a list of clear commands they seem to imply, or better yet, a manual with step-by-step -step instructions for how to live? Be good. Jesus responds saying, you've been given insight into God's kingdom. You know how it works. Not everybody has this gift, this insight. It hasn't been given to everyone. Whenever someone has a ready heart for this, the insights and understandings flow freely. But if there is no readiness, any trace of receptivity soon disappears. That's why I tell stories to create readiness, to nudge people toward a welcome awakening. Wow. A welcome awakening. You know, one of my favorite preachers is Barbara Brown Taylor, and she's obviously preached on this text. Uh, she did a whole sermon where she talked about uh, becoming a gardener at her house, and she cleared away a little patch in front of her kitchen window. And she was very diligent in getting rid of all the mint that was there and even digging it up and getting its roots out and, you know, and everything. And she ordered seeds from some place in London and uh, had a whole plan about what was going to be planted at the back and then in the middle and at the front. Very, very careful. You know, uh, mixed in, she has llamas, and so she mixed in some, what she calls something like llama sparkles, which is poop. And so she uh, said, she mixed that in and, you know, got some good soil. And so she watered every day for, every day for a long time and then went on a trip and it, it didn't, wasn't there for 10 days and came back. And the garden was flourishing with tomato plants <laughs> and with uh, morning glories and with things that she hadn't planted and with some mint coming back to take over, okay? Well, here's what she writes at the end of her sermon. Since I am new at gardening, I do not know the answer yet. Maybe there is not one, but many, depending on the gardener in question. One thing is for sure, some gardener, some farmer was here ahead of me. There is more life hidden in this rich earth than I could have asked for or imagined. All I did, had to do was bend down and look, or perhaps in the words of Isaiah, Listen. 
But consider this. This isn't any kind of farmer I've ever known. As I said, farmers and gardeners don't plant like that. They, they're careful. But this farmer throws seed indiscriminately and lets it fall where it will. And so, like the prophet Isaiah, God is saying, here, here, I'm throwing the seed everywhere. Let's see what happens. Let's see how people will thrive. Let's see what is going to happen in your life and in the world. This is how God plants. And then we need to step back and listen and look. This call to listen is an invitation to the ethical posture of attention, a posture of attending to the other who is God and who is our neighbor. The great preacher Fred Frederick Buechner, really writer and preacher, said this, listen to your life. See it for the fathomless mystery it is. In the boredom and pain of it, no less than in the excitement and gladness, touch, taste, smell your way to the holy and hidden heart of it. Because in the last analysis, all moments are key moments, and life itself is grace. You know, these two scriptures, God begs us to listen, to awaken. And to remember, as Mother Teresa said, radiating around us is joy. <clears throat> radiating around us, the joy is real. Amen. Because Christ is everywhere, even when we cannot see, even when we cannot hear, even when we forget to listen. The joy is still there. Thanks be to God. Amen.